Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Sesha Hindi. For those of you familiar with the show, thanks for tuning in to our new time for the summer, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Eye on the Triangle is WKNC's weekly public affairs show. We took a break during NC State's exam period and before classes started up again, but now we're back in action with this new time. You can find out more about Eye on the Triangle on WKNC.org slash blog and clicking on the news link on our Facebook fan page called Eye on the Triangle, and you can follow us on Twitter at WKNCEOT. Eye on the Triangle will bring you the latest in local news, sports, arts, music, and more. This week's episode will focus on EOT's best of segments from last year. For both our new listeners to familiarize them with the segments and our returning listeners to remember some of the segments they told us they liked best. As always, feel free to email us with comments, suggestions, and questions to publicaffairs at wknc.org and continue to nominate people you deem worthy for our Wolfpacker of the Week segment on WKNC.org slash EOT. Now on to Best of EOT's VIP. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. This is the Best of VIP on Eye on the Triangle. This is Allison Harmon. During Black History Month, Seja Hindi and I were able to talk to some of the civil rights movement's most influential leaders. I remember during my interview with Bob Zellner, who was a political activist in North Carolina and now up north, that my mouth just dropped open from one of the stories he was telling. Seja was sitting beside me, and I tried to mouth to her what Zellner had just said. But then he talked about working with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I just stopped and listened. Seja also had some amazing interviews, which you'll hear now. I'm Seja Hindi. Today I sat down with the co-founder of the International Civil Rights Museum and Center, Earl Jones. Jones is also a state representative for House District 60 and was and continues to be a civil rights activist. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Jones. You had told me earlier that you were involved in the late civil rights movement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, in 1967, uh, I was a freshman at North Carolina Central University and I participated in several marches um, downtown, uh, protests and segregation. Uh, so that was my extent uh, of uh, involvement. On February 1, 1960, when the sit-ins first occurred uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, by the Greensboro, North Carolina A&T State University 4, I was 11 years old growing up in rural part of Alamance County, North Carolina, Burlington uh, area. What made you decide to co-found the International Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro? Well, it's a very uh, significant historic event, and that's a historic as a result of what happened on February 1, 1964, where four young men from North Carolina A&T State University went down to the Woolworth store, sat down at the counter, ordered some food, and therefore um, challenged Jim Crow segregation and second-class citizenship uh, for black Americans uh, at that time. It was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, it ignited actually invigorated the civil rights movement. It brought in hundreds of thousands of new participants in the movement, and specifically students throughout the South and throughout the country. What can you tell us about this new museum? Well, the uh, International Civil Rights Museum and Center, as I had indicated, is in honor of the four students from North Carolina A&T State University that set out and sparked the city and movement as a strategy of civil disobedience to overcome oppression and and injustice here in America. And uh, that 
and I felt that that should be preserved in honor of not only the, the Greensboro Four, but also the hundreds of thousands of American citizens that participated in the uh, civil rights movement to help change America and destroy Jim Crow segregation in America. Okay. So you've been an activist pretty much throughout your life. You said you were involved in protests earlier. Why is this so important to you? Well, uh, I've been an activist. It really bothered me and pained me once I became politically conscious as a student at North Carolina Central University that African Americans have been treated of uh, uh, how, how we've been treated over the years. And I just, I just had a passion uh, and a love for my people, black people here in, in the hills of North America. And I felt that we've contributed uh, more than anyone else to build this country. We are American citizens. I thought it was a tragedy of the Constitution and the principles enunciated uh, by the so-called founding fathers uh, and those principles enunciated in the U.S. Constitution that African-Americans were not uh, provided or given equal rights as everyone else. I thought that was an American tragedy uh, that should be changed, and, and I've committed my life to it as a student at North Carolina Central University. Uh, and subsequent to that, that's why I decided to go into uh, law and social work instead of biology, which was my passion and my love. So um, I knew that as a social worker, I could change lives and perhaps change society. But more importantly, with a, a, a legal training, I could file one lawsuit, which I've done, <laughs> by the way, and change the entire society or the entire state or change the the way people have to act and behave uh, uh, throughout the nation. Uh, uh, I guess Brown, the Brown case, um, uh, in 1954, Brown case is a good example of that, where segregation of public schools was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court by one lawsuit, and schools were desegregated throughout the South and to a certain degree throughout certain areas of America. So um, uh, I, I, I've been committed to that, and... Um, Graduated from law school in 1976, I began to work with the uh, Greensboro chapter of the NAACP. As a matter of fact, on November 3rd, 1979, the Ku Klux Klan came to Greensboro, North Carolina, and assassinated five uh, uh, union workers, uh, uh, pro-worker uh, workers. Uh, and that's when I attended my first NAACP meeting. About a week after that, and two or three weeks later, Dr. the late Dr. George Simpkins, who was president of the local chapter of the NAACP, appointed me as legal counsel at the local chapter, which was a volunteer position. And I worked with the uh, Greensboro Justice Fund and other lawyers who had come in throughout the country uh, to sue the city, sue the state of North Carolina, sue various federal and state agencies. Um, and ultimately, the, the civil suit was, um, uh, was victorious in that the uh, survivors uh, of the individuals who were uh, killed uh, uh, received some monetary uh, remuneration for that. And then from that particular position, I um, uh, launched a legal challenge against the city of Greensboro that in 1981 elected an all-white city council. And uh, under the Voting Rights Act, um, working on behalf of the NAACP, was able to get the city uh, through the Justice Department to get the city to move to a 531 district system, which the city operates under today, and we 
have African Americans serving on the city council. Uh, that was a basic fundamental wrong. Taxation without representation. One third of the of the community in Greensboro at that time was African American in 1981, uh, and they were paying taxes without representation. In 1986, I filed a lawsuit on behalf of the NAACP under the Voting Rights Act to establish a district form of government to elect uh, African Americans have an opportunity to elect individuals of their choice to the Gifford County Board of Commissioners. Again, before 1986, you had an all-white uh, Board of County Commissioners, Gifford County Board of Commissioners. One-fourth of the population and taxpaying citizens in Gifford County were African Americans. Again, a basic fundamental right being violated, taxation without, rep uh, without representation. As old as George Washington and Tom Thomas Jefferson's uh, concept of, of, um, of, of fairness and justice. And, of course, that lawsuit was victorious, and now we have three African-Americans serving on the Gifford County Board of Commissioners. As a matter of fact, my, the co-founder with me, Melvin Skip Austin, is chairman of the Gifford County Board of Commissioners presently. So that's some of my involvement, not all of it. I did establish and start an anti-poverty program in Gifford County, and that program I, I led for about 16 years, and we had an impact on about six to 8,000 families where we uh, were lifted out of pro poverty and became self-sufficient, tax-paying citizens, and they continued to work and contribute to the community in a positive way even today. Okay. Uh, that's just a part of what I've been doing. Of course, presently I serve uh, in the North Carolina General Assembly, I also served as a member of the Greensboro City Council here in Greensboro for 18 years. In the September 28th edition of VIP, Congressman David Price gave some insight into what was probably the most heated debate of 2009, health care. Adam Compton reports. Currently, what are the holdups to the bill and what is the opposition saying about the bill? Well, the uh, opposition is uh, all over the place, really, and so it's hard to generalize about that. I think there are a certain number of partisan opponents who just simply want this to fail and want the president to fail, and there's nothing on earth we could do to draft a bill that would satisfy them. But uh, I, I certainly don't put uh, everybody in that uh, category. I think uh, there are some genuine differences. Some of the differences are pretty broad. I'm not sure what it will take to bridge some of these gaps. We uh, may or may not be able to have uh, bipartisan support for this uh, bill. The inclusion of a publicly administered option in this marketplace of plans for unattached individuals and small businesses, that uh, is a sticking point for some people. Some of us think it's really important to have such an option to, to um, exert a downward pull on costs and to offer good quality, good uh, competition, but uh, others disagree with that. I think probably the biggest issue is cost. Uh, the president has wisely said we uh, can't add to the deficit with this program. Unlike a lot of what President Bush did the last eight years, we're not going to just borrow the money. But I think we've got to find some money. I know we do. And um, that's what a lot of the debate's going to be about. Where where do those savings come from? I think we've got a good brief overview of what's going on with the health care bill in Congress. Are there any final points you would like to add? The only thing I would add is that a lot of your audience, uh, young adults, would... Um, would do well to pay attention to this debate. Uh, I know uh, people on campus generally have pretty good uh, coverage, but uh, after they graduate, that may not be the case. And uh, sometimes it's possible to attain fairly economical coverage, but then if you have uh, if you 
health problems in your past, you, you may not find that to be the case, and you may or may not be covered at work. And in any case, you're not going to be young and healthy forever, so you need to buy into the system so that you'll be protected when you need to be. All of those things are, uh, are facts of life for uh, people about to enter the workplace in their, in their 20s. And they have a lot to gain by the system being reformed and uh, being participants in it. To settle the great Glenwood South versus downtown Raleigh battle, I sat down with business owners from both areas. They each had insights into where their neighborhoods were heading and what made the two neighborhoods different. As a Greensboro native who's only been here for four years, it was interesting to learn that Glenwood South has only just been developed in the past five or six years and that downtown Raleigh looked completely different before I came here. I sat down with Chris Powers and David Woody Lockwood, co-owners of the Busy Bee Cafe in downtown Raleigh. We discussed how their restaurant, which opened in the spring of last year, fits into the new image of downtown Raleigh. Chris and Woody, thanks for coming in today. Sure, thanks for having us. Thank you. So you've both worked on Glenwood South and in downtown Raleigh. Where exactly did you work in those areas? Bartended and wrote the bar program for uh, Bogarts and the beer list for High Five and uh, moved downtown to write the beer list at the Raleigh Times and left there to work on opening my own project. I uh, also worked at Bogarts. We That's where we met. We opened Bogarts together as servers, actually. Chris took over the bar and I also began bartending. Moved over to Red Room eventually and was the bar manager there as well as the general manager. Your location is right in the epicenter of what many people consider to be the new downtown Raleigh. Why did you choose Wilmington Street over other areas like Glenwood South or another street in downtown Raleigh? For that exact reason, the neighborhood's growing quickly. The city is doing their best to make that area better. The costs were obviously involved, but the neighborhood was a lot more important to us, the the community feeling down there and the fact that there was already a love of beer in that area. Fayetteville Street had already been developed, and we were looking at Wilmington Street as the next section of that downtown area to be developed. And we moved in and uh, sort of want to be the pioneers on that street. There's other opportunities for restaurants and bars to open up, and we just wanted to get in there and get started. And were you considering any other locations? Yes, we are open to any location. We really like living downtown, like working downtown, and we consider that area of Wilmington Street to be pretty much central to downtown. Um, and the opportunity came up, and we had to jump on it. We both walked to work the greatest thing. Yeah. <laughs> Having worked in both locations, give us a little insight into the difference between Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. With us in particular, and with a lot of our neighbors, it's just a more laid-back, comfortable kind of feeling. Just the setting that we have. You don't have to get dressed up in a suit to come out and have dinner there. Or even late night if you want to go out. Glenwood, all the years we spend, people get dressed up. It's a little more blitzy. Mm-hmm. That's the right term. Yeah. We wanted to be a place where people could come out five nights a week, come in after work, come in in their soccer uniform, come in any way that they end up meeting their friends and not feel bad about it. Glenwood Avenue is a little bit more of a, an event sort of thing. We see it as a place where people go out to celebrate bachelorette parties or go out to party, whereas we want to be Monday through Sunday, a place that people think about bringing their friends or their family when they come to town to show them, say, this is where I go, this is my cheers. Downtown Raleigh and Glenwood South are only blocks apart, so it's interesting to see how two areas so close together can garner such different crowds, images, and even business. Would you say there's a competition there? I think the R-Line has made a little bit of a bridge. Not to sound like there's any ego involved, but I think Chris and I having contacts from Glenwood helped with a little bit of crossover. But I wouldn't say competition. I think there's a lot of places opening up in between that are kind of making it so people start venturing a little bit further in either direction. What we do downtown is, is so much different than what goes on in Glenwood Avenue. Leave. There's been a lot of talk in the media lately about the new images for both Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. What images do these areas have now and what are the new images that they're working toward? 
It's bringing people back to downtown, celebrating these old buildings that they're not building new buildings like that. Our building is 104 years old. We chose to celebrate it. Places like Landmark do the same thing and Foundation. We're trying to bring people that work downtown, get them to stay downtown, to think of staying downtown. You know, they work at the Wachovia and walk across the street to Foundation for a drink or come over to the Busy Bee for dinner. We're trying to bring people our age back into downtown. People were so set on North Raleigh or other areas of Raleigh to hang out to go to dinner. You're listening to Best of VIP on Eye on the Triangle. Nothing's gonna get me down Free as the wind Free as the wind Spin along my time You're listening to WKNT 88.1 FM. This is Community Canvas. I'm Michael Jones, and every week I go and edit the podcast for Eye on the Triangle, which you can download on iTunes U right now. So if you ever want to go back and listen to anything that I'm going to mention, especially today, you should. So what happens is every Tuesday I'll stroll into to the KNC studios, and I come in and sit down and edit the Eye on the Triangle podcast and throw it up on iTunes. And there was one case back in November where I missed the show the night of, and so I came in here to to listen to it and take notes and see what parts I needed to edit, what adjustments I needed to make. And I sat down and, and started listening to the Community Canvas segment, and it starts incredibly professional. Kelly comes on, she talks, she gives a little bit of backstory, and so she does a, a very fine job. She has all of her, her points straight, her questions straight, and she is in no way um, audibly intoxicated. And then Mike Alston, former general manager, who I love to death, he, he comes on. I remember listening to the segment and thinking, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and as I go back and listen to it now, and as we sit down and listen to it, we can't help but just to laugh out loud. I, I've heard it like four or five times since I've put together this segment and it's just it still gets me every time here is community canvas this one originally aired the night of november 9th 2009 and i hope you like it all right yes you get the stickers all right so we're we're at raleigh times what's your name my name's tim ayers all right so what what exactly is going on and is this a first friday exclusive no no we do this about four out of seven nights of the week we, we like to bring it real. Oh, that's a good jam. Is this your boombox? It is my boombox. When box. did you purchase this boombox? I bought it uh, just before SparkCon at Father and Son. It looks like you uh, you bought it just before SparkCon 1982. I just spotted Jenny Jones. You you do you do you really do this four nights a week? Sometimes you know. Sometimes it's in a parking lot, a parking deck. Sometimes it's at times. Do you, anything special about the first Friday edition of the Moving Dance Party? Oh, no, the Roving Dance Party just happens, but uh, I do love First Friday as an artist, as a ceramic artist, and, and just a supporter of local culture. Did you, guys see, did you guys see any art tonight? And then I'll leave you alone. Yeah, yeah. I went to uh, Reba's Works, Ant Farm, Collector's Gallery, Lump, Opponent, Oak, Visual Art Exchange, Fish Market, Morning Times. You did it all. I did it all. Nice, man. Thanks for talking to us. All right, and I'm talking to... Potatoes. All right, what's going on, Potatoes? How long have you guys been dancing? For a hot potato minute. Nicely done. A day? A day? I saw you last night at Feature Islands. 
You danced over at Troika last night, yeah? Yeah, we, we, were, uh, we were potatoing at the potato. Was... Yeah, so you brought it from Durham to Raleigh. From Durham to Raleigh. There you go. You had to be here for First Friday, right? You have, of course, of course. Did you see any art tonight? Um, I didn't. It doesn't matter because there's really good independent music going on right now. That's right, DJ Major Glazer. Exactly. Awesome. Where are you guys going after Raleigh Times? Um, jackpot. Jackpot. There it is. And there you have it. Mine and many others' favorite community canvas segment and uh, the history of Island the Triangle thus far. Buzz had been growing about the new building at the North Carolina Museum of Art since before the museum closed its doors to visitors for its interior exhibits on September 7, 2009. Eye on the Triangle sent two of its community canvas correspondents, Kieran Marrera and Jacob Downey, to cover the opening weekend and experience firsthand if there was substance to the hype. From early media reviews attempting to inoculate to the shed-like appearance of the new West Building and being present to some heated discussions at downtown watering holes lambasting the new building's architecture, Kieran and I approached the art museum wearing our skeptic hats early on Saturday morning. As soon as we left the overflowing parking lot, Jacob and I were awestruck by the new structure which was teeming with life. That weekend, close to 15,000 guests and visitors came to the North Carolina Museum of Art's new addition to its 164-acre campus. I could only describe the West Building as something fantastical, taken directly from a science fiction novel. One of the impressive things to me was how fresh art pieces I was familiar with had become due to the new building's natural lighting and inviting layout. In order to get a better understanding of the design layout, we spoke with Eric Gard, the head of exhibition design. In most of our galleries, all the casework was designed and built in-house. We have a staff of eight designers, artists, and craftsmen that actually man the exhibit design department. And probably 90% of 200 pieces of casework were built by our in-house production team. Um, and it's all weighted to the floor um, because we can't actually screw into the wood floor like we would have in the old building. So it's weighted um, with about 200 to 300 pounds of weight in each, pa- in each base or pedestal. It's 50% of the exterior walls are all glass. And then there are 360 skylights that allow light to come in and penetrate the building in a diffused way um, from multiple angles. So as you can see, it gives a very kind of um, beautiful, quiet atmosphere to the building, which we did not have before in the other building that was built like a prison. I mean, it's a bunker in there. There are no windows anywhere, and so the collection looks completely different here in this building, which is great. With the windows, for example, the windows are fritted glass. They have the lines um, printed in between sheets of glass, and there's a UV protection device on the inside. Um, The drapes, the shades, the skylights, everything helps allow light to come in, but in a very diffused manner so it doesn't ever strike a work of art um, because it's diffused throughout the room. And um, there's UV protection, ultraviolet light protection everywhere, including the um, lighting system, the track lighting system that you see also has UV lighting protection. So every work of art is protected in a certain way. Luckily, Jacob and I were fortunate enough to speak to Thomas Pfeiffer, the head architect for the firm that commissioned the museum, as he was mingling with patrons on Saturday. Pfeiffer spoke to the museum's lighting design in relation to North Carolina's cultural heritage. You know, for a long, long time, museums have been designed with daylight. From Johnson um, all the way through Lucan and Kimball, there's a heritage of daylighting galleries. And so we wanted to pick up on, on these paintings that are so beautiful, to see them in the moving and changing light. Because nature is not just the bamboo, it's not just plantings, it's not just the trees, but nature is light, and it's the movement of light, it's the changing light, the atmosphere of the sunrise and sunset, and we wanted to capture that spirit here within the galleries. We wanted this to be a very open building, a very Miesian building, a building that 
where the galleries would flow one to the other without any barriers at all, so that the collections could really move together. They, they could become one collection, one museum, one gallery. I'm just so happy to have people in the building after all these years. I love it with people here. It's an exciting weekend for the people of North Carolina to see these works in a new light. For the next Best of Community Canvas, reporter Mike Austin focused on a more theatrical form of art, and he looked no further than the Burning Coal Theater in downtown Raleigh. Austin spoke with members of the company, Jen Sahanik, Emily Reyna, and James Anderson, who gave a behind-the-script look at the characters in the then-upcoming play, Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. So this year's Shakespeare play is Much Ado About Nothing. You want to tell us a little bit about the play? It is an absolutely beautifully whimsical piece that takes a look at um, at love and how we find it. Um, uh, mature love is also that 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 young puppy love um, and the wit and whimsy of it all. Do we want to get into the piece? This is uh, Beatrice and Benedict's first meeting after after the men return from war. So they have so Beatrice and Benedict knew each other prior to the war, um, and and now it is their it is their first battle of wits upon that upon that return. If Signor Leonardo be her father, she would not have his head on her shoulders for all Messina as like him as she is. I wonder that you should still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear Lady Disdain? Are you yet living? Is it possible that Disdain should die while she has such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to Disdain when you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat? But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you excepted. And mm. I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. But I thank God and my cold blood I am of your humor for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestined and scratched face. Scratching cannot make it worse and for such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse have the speed of your tongue and so good a continuer. Well, keep your way, a god's name. I have done. You always end with a jade's trick. I know you of old. Okay, so that's scene from Much Ado About Nothing. And Shakespeare's just so good at that sort of crude dialogue between man and woman. Am I correct there that that's really one of the things he does well? Repartee, um, as well as as this play is very much about a battle of wits, and and you will hear um, uh, characters constantly one upping each other in a contest. It's like that. It's like that hand game with one hand that constantly uh-huh. goes above another. Right. Up and up and up and up. So you guys have all done Shakespeare before? Yes. Yes. And how do you feel about this one as opposed to the ones you might have done in the past? Anything in particular stand out about it? It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> They're always hard at first. Yeah, this is the probably the largest uh, Shakespearean role that I've I've ever done in my career. Oh. Um, and this guy is really intelligent. He's very uh, witty. And his brain just goes a mile a minute. And it, that's kind of hard to do because you have to break it apart and then put it back together again and make sure it's happening in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been a really big challenge for me. And how about the diction? Well, you've got you've to pronounce the words because they're beautiful. And, I mean, Shakespeare is a poet also, and his language is gorgeous. And plus, everything's written in a meter. 
But you also have to make it sound like you're really having a conversation. Right. But you can't get too natural, and that's something Emily in rehearsal a lot of says. You know, she'll say, you're naturalizing, which is you can't try to make it too slangy because it is Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And it's a celebration of language. And what something that's really interesting about Much Ado About Nothing in particular is all of Shakespeare's plays have verse poetry as well as prose. Um, and Much Ado About Nothing is primarily prose, which is very unusual. It's usually primarily verse. And then the, um, and then the, and then the clown characters in uh-huh. Shakespeare frequently have the prose. But interestingly enough, all the characters in Much Ado About Nothing have significant prose. And you would think that that would indicate that Much Ado About Nothing comes early in Shakespeare's writing career, but to the contrary, it actually comes later uh, in his career. And I think that's something that's really fascinating, um, just about uh, just about his trajectory as, also, as well as the play itself. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to say work two jobs and be able to support yourself here than it might be somewhere else? I feel like there, there is not the fighting. The there's not the fighting to survive here mm. uh, that that drains and saps your energy that there is in New York uh-huh. or L.A. and even it's to a certain extent in Chicago. You audition can, after audition after audition, and even just the transportation, like mm. of and, getting to the job, and the sheer volume of actors that live in New York. You know, you're up against people that are better than you of your own caliber and people that are just beginning and you're all in the same pot. And uh, it becomes, or at least for me, it became making decisions on how my career was going to be bettered versus exactly. um, ar- artistic uh, choices and uh, doing things for, for, for wanting to do a character. Like I would, in New York, I would never have been cast as Benedict. Um, if I would have been, it would have been in some warehouse production that was no bigger than this studio uh-huh. in the lower depths of a Brooklyn, you know, tenement neighborhood, and nobody would come and see it. Right. You know, anybody that, you know, no agents, no casting directors, that kind of thing that could further my career, nobody would come and see it. That pressure of making it as an actor isn't really there here. The quality of, of artists in this triangle, it's amazing. I mean, really I think just as good as New York City. There's just not as many. Although there's a lot. There's an right. unbelievable number of theaters in the triangle at this point. Once again, you're listening to I in the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. You just listened to some of I in the Triangle's favorite community canvas picks. To hear the full segments, check out wknc.org slash blog. We at WKNC were excited this spring to hear that the Kingsbury Manx were releasing an album for the first time in four years. It was a bit of a surprise, however, when the album came in an envelope with two others, the Americans in France debut, Pretzelvania, and the Impossible Arms debut, Ripped in No Time. Turns out these three albums were all officially released simultaneously for what was the launch of Odessa Records. Odessa is the brainchild of Kingsbury Manx member and music industry veteran Paul Finn. For this week's Hear This segment, Kelly Reed caught up with Paul to talk about how Odessa Records started, what his plans for the label are, and what new projects might have developed. So um, why don't you give me a quick rundown of what or who Odessa Records 
is? I uh, started Odessa Records uh, late last year. You know, I, I've long kind of wanted to have a record label, and I, I've worked at a lot of record labels over, over the years. Um, I used to live in Chicago in the late 90s and started out as an intern at Touch and Go, and that led to a, a full-time job at, at Drag City for a few years. And then I, I left Chicago and uh, ended up working at Merch a little bit. So kind of working at record labels, but between that and like working at restaurants was kind of the only thing I've ever really done uh, with my adult life. Which is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. Yeah, yeah it's not, not a bad thing. I, I, you know, I enjoy both industries, actually. But, um, you know, music's always been uh, near and dear to my heart. I've been in a lot of bands over the years, and I'm actually a current, current member of the Kingsbury Knights. Was that the official first release for Odessa? It wasn't the first planned release for Odessa. Um, the first planned release was the American France record. And basically, the way it came about, I had sort of started getting into sort of producing records in kind of like a, we were kind of in a, in a, in a lull with the Manx where we weren't as active and for, for various reasons and kind of in between records. So in the interim, I kind of started work producing and sort of hooked up America of France um, and another band, Impossible Arms, and co-produced uh, both those records. Uh, the American France one uh, with Brian Paulson, and then with the Impossible Arms is Jerry Key, a pretty great person to work with. And I enjoyed the experience thoroughly, um, but when we got to the end of, of both of those records where they were mixed and, and, and ready to be mastered, the question arose, well, what now? Um, what, what are we going to do with these records? And uh, during the same time, uh, the Kingsbury Manx was kind of without a label, and I, me and the other guys in the band have sort of been through the awful process of, like, sending out, you know, the, the, the record. Yeah. Trying to see if anyone was interested, you know, getting some response, but, you know, ultimately a lot of no's. Um, and this is coming off of Yep Rock Records for you guys? Yeah, we had done the one record for Yep Rock uh, in 2005, Fast Rise and Fall the South. We ended up parting ways uh, amicably with, with Yep Rock, you know, their marriages and births and houses being bought and stuff like that, and we didn't really have the time to commit, kind of doing what it takes to sort of really work uh, another record, you know? Yeah. And so we, we kind of took a little bit of an unofficial, not creative hiatus, but like... Um, Just a step back. Hiatus. Yeah. yeah, and we kind of wanted to be, it's kind of strange, but we kind of wanted to be on a smaller label. Uh, we sort of started out on a small label, Overcoat, um, run by Howard Grenolds. We only left Overcoat because uh, Howard kind of started getting into management more and, and sort of not doing labels actively. This week, for another combined effort of Community Canvas and Hear This, we go to Durham for the Troika Music Festival. Troika has come a long way since its birth from the original project, the Durham Music Festival. Yet so has Durham, boasting its newly built Durham Performing Arts Center. Mike Alston sat down with Kyle Miller, one of the event organizers, to talk about what makes Durham such a great place for music, what's new to the Troika lineup this year, and how some of the bills got put together for this year's festival. The festival itself has obviously grown tremendously since 2002, its inception. Have Has the amount of things happening in Durham grown as well over the past seven years? Absolutely. Uh, I think there's always been a lot of great stuff happening in Durham. Um, maybe previously more under the radar. Uh, people didn't know about it so much. But now as downtown is kind of reemerging, you know, coming into its own again, uh, there are more venues opening in Durham. Um, I also think a lot of creative people have moved to Durham over the last, you know, 10 years or so. Um, you know, Durham's affordable, Durham's walkable, Durham's a great place to live, and I think it's brought a lot of people into town. And, you know, the more creative people you have in town of, of whatever sort, uh, you know, the more talent you have to draw Absolutely. from in putting on something like this. It It's sort of self-perpetuating. 
Yeah, so do you think that Troika sort of mirrors... There's a lot of talk about the downtown Durham revival. How much do you think Troika mirrors or maybe even helps shape what Durham is aspiring to be? I think they're heavily related, right? Um, We're able to put on a better festival because, you know, there are more places to have shows and have bands. Um, And and like I said, you know, as Durham is growing um, culturally, if you will... um, you know, as as we bring in those more more creative folks, um, there's there's that talent pool to draw from. There's there's that economic activity going on um, that is more and more each year as well. You know, and I think mm-hmm. I think we absolutely help draw from that. And if you know, if we're at all a part of encouraging that kind of stimulus, um, all the better. Absolutely, uh, and also in addition to maybe Durham's role in the triangle. Let's talk a little bit about the Triangle's role in sort of the national music scene. You guys open this up. Uh, you open up artist submissions universally, right? Yeah. There's a form out on the web, and we try to spread that out as much as we can, you know, to blogs that'll pick it up or, you know, websites that'll run our news stories. Um, we get it out there on sites like Reverb Nation, you know, uh-huh. that have a lot of bands. Uh, and there's a submission form, and, and I think one thing that's it's probably not unique, but it's uncommon for festivals is it's free to submit and free in in both the monetary sense that doesn't cost you anything and free in that anybody is allowed to do it and so we get submissions from all over the place you know submissions um, honestly we've gotten some um not just from far-flung parts of the country but um from france and from greece this year um there was an italian artist that submitted you know and a, a lot of times those things are logistically hard to make happen um but you know, we love that that the name is getting out there, uh, and part of the reason that that's getting out there is, I mean, you know, look at all the great triangle acts that we have involved. Mm-hmm. So, what else does Troika encompass exactly, in addition to the live shows? Troika is mainly a music festival. Um, always has been. Um, this year, you know, we're involving a new event um, as part of the Troika Music Festival that's called Rock Paper Scissors uh, to bring in other kinds of artists. Um, so, not just not just music, um, but also, um, you know, visual artists and crafters. Um, we'll have painters and photographers and people that make handmade clothing, um, purses, uh, things like that. Local artists, you know, it doesn't mean just music. It means a lot of things. Absolutely. And so we're, we're happy to involve um, those folks uh, in a music event, uh, the Rock, Paper, Scissors event. It's going to be, we're calling it an arts, crafts, and music marketplace you're listening to Eye on the Triangles, hear this. I'm Seja Hindi. Assistant Daytime Music Director Michael Jones, more commonly known as DJ Ones, and I sat down with I Was Totally Destroying It to talk about their latest video project. During the past three years, the five-member band from Chapel Hill has recorded two records and an EP. The band's next show is at Club 828 in Asheville on January 29th, and its next rally show is February 15th at the Poor House. Hey, this is John from I Was Totally Destroying It, and uh, happy to be here. And I'm Rachel. Awesome. Thanks for being here. So what can you guys tell us about your latest project of recording basically everything leading up to your next album? You said it was a New Year's resolution. What kind of spurred the idea? I guess it's just that um, we get really interested in watching other bands go through this process. Like, we've always really enjoyed watching um, some of our favorite bands uh as they are in the process of recording and creating a project. And also, I mean, John's wanted to do this for a really long time. And 
we always have had a camera around like when we've been on the road we brought cameras with us and we said oh man we should film this because it's actually a pretty interesting process and um we never did <laughs> so now that john's written it down in a blog and published it and said we're gonna do this it's kind of like well we we really have to now yeah it's really hard to give yourself the motivation to do that i think um yeah getting it out there definitely is a, a reason to say well people know that we're planning to do this now so we're kind of stuck with it um but uh yeah basically it's it's just kind of about adding a certain challenge to the music making process that's something that excites me a lot um I don't want to get stuck in the same rules of this is how we do something and we've done it this way before, so we should do it this way again. Uh, so it's, it's always just interesting to shake it up a bit with things like that. There's a lot of artists out there that I've, I've been following Brian Eno a lot and I, I geek out on him a lot. And uh, he's always had a lot of different ways of at least to come in and work with bands and just try approaches that the band might not be used to to, to make the process of making an album unique for them i just read a book about one of his records brian Eno and this other guy made these cards these playing cards called oblique strategies and basically what they do is uh you know you shuffle a deck of cards that they came up with and they all have this like instruction on them you like you pull one out you're like basically you hit an impasse in the recording process and you're like well what do we do next like we're, we're kind of stalemated right now with this song that we're working on or something you pull a card out and it has some random instruction it could be any, anything from erase all the tape to uh and, and they're actually a lot of the instructions are across the board for any kind of art so they're kind of, they're a little bit more vague than that but like i'm trying to think of one uh, think, think of, of the radio think of the radio think of the radio is one is it yeah really? okay well, th there you go that's kind of top yeah. um but yeah like just just things to like maybe get you through an impasse or to make you think about where you're stuck differently mm. once again those were some clips from i am the triangles hear this to hear the full segments check out wknc.org slash blog Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. A spotlight on those who go above and beyond. You're listening to the best of the Wolfpacker of the Week here on Eye on the Triangle. If you had to find out what is, quote-unquote, the best from our Wolfpacker of the Week series, it would have to be that they highlight the opportunities that arise from participating in academic communities. This first became apparent to me when Russell Gentry, a senior who had come in to talk with us about his involvement in the Thompson Theater production of Amadeus, was just as excited to talk about his excavation trips that NC State had allowed him to go on. Okay, outside of the realm of theater, I've been fortunate to be able to at least stay active in my, uh, what I hope to be my academic career, and participate in uh, several excavations um, since I'm studying history and archaeology, uh, specifically the uh, Roman period, really specifically Rome in the ancient Near East. I've gotten to excavate in uh, Poland, Macedonia, and Jordan. And this summer, actually, was Jordan, and that was really an amazing, an amazing place to visit. I recommend it to anybody. I mean, I've been to a lot of sites and I've visited a lot of sites in different countries and it's always been interesting to me since I'm studying uh, the history and archaeology of those sites. But really, Jordan had sites that I feel like would be amazing for anyone to see. Just It offers kind of a unique, a unique place to visit because it's, it's in the Middle East, which has been you know, kind of a volatile area, but Jordan itself is fairly safe. 
and open to tourists. Uh, so it's kind of a unique opportunity to be able to get to go and see, you know, amazing sights and uh, and amazing different cultures that uh, wouldn't normally be accessible to a student or a group of students traveling. And so henceforth, Katie's no longer and Red was born. Before I came to state, I had no idea that rugby existed or even imagined myself playing. But now that I have, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life or my college career. I mean, I'm a student first, but secondly, I'm a rugby player. At the very least, I'm going to take rugby with me for the rest of my life, be that as a player, a spectator, or maybe even a sir or a referee. Rugby will always be a huge part of my life. That's one of our Wolfpacker of the Weeks from last fall, Red formerly known as Katie Walls, pointing out how participating in near-life experiences found in academic communities allows us to find our passions and forge our identities. These sentiments are shared by another former Wolfpack of the Week, mixed martial artist Andrew Tucker. One of the amazing things is on campus, I found a lot of resources for what I'm doing. Uh, Patrick Ward down at uh, Campus Rec is built like a Spartan. He does the best power drills class, agilities classes that I've been able to find anywhere. And the Aikido Club actually has some great, and it's really just a good principle of, of martial arts. And it's really enjoyable. One thing uh, I always like to impart whenever I talk to people about being a student, especially at NC State, is that being here five years, I've, I've done a lot. I've, I've had the opportunity to be a part of a lot of, you know, I've been able to be involved in athletics. I've been able to be involved in student government. I've been able to be involved working on campus. You know, it's great. And the one thing I suggest to anybody out there is, is do everything you can whenever you're here. I really urge everyone out there that if you get the opportunity, go online, find a couple clubs you're interested in, something that you may have wanted to, to start before, and go out there and try it. Because you may surprise yourself and you may find a lifelong passion. One of the most important opportunities afforded by collegiate communities is the chance to come together with others. A chance that translated to success in the smartphone business for Jack Zappel and Addison Hardy when they and some other transfer students that they met in late night library sessions came together to start the company, Harmonious Inc. We all first came together at the end of last semester. We're transfer students, and we met up basically in the library one night and started hammering out ideas, and it turned into Harmonious Inc. Uh, I think I think it was easy for us to come together. I mean, one, the school is really focused on engineering technology, and so it has a great program, and I mean, that brought Addison here. I mean, there's a lot of resources that we can use here that we probably couldn't find at other colleges and so i mean that combined with uh, keenan with his economics and me and charles it's it's all just come together pretty well here another great wolfpack of the week is Alyssa hopkins whose graduate work centered to the bottom of the world where she made a discovery outside of her research on the impact of climate change on phytoplankton and more to do with her love of ultimate frisbee i got involved in the research here in nc state with um i actually was an undergrad here was studying meteorology and I was interested in climate, um, particularly in the Arctic. And I applied to a number of graduate schools and was actually approached by my advisor, Dr. Carrie Thomas, because the project was funded right before the deadline for graduate school to, to accept whatever school you were going to. And they said, you know, we know that you're interested in the Arctic. Would you like to do work in the Antarctic? And I said, absolutely. It's been amazing. I've seen penguins. I've seen <laughs> glaciers. I've seen... I've seen penguins playing Frisbee. <laughs> Journalism professor Dick Revis's reflection on the civil rights movement illustrated how even cafeteria discussions and dorm lounge arguments can lead to opportunities to help change the world. People talked about it or argued about it all the time. I found myself siding with the movement in all those dorm cafeteria type arguments. And one day I went into the cafeteria and there was a recruiting bulletin said that SCLC and SNCC were recruiting summer volunteers. 
SNCC paid nothing. SCLC paid twelve day, $12 a week. So since I had nothing, I went with SCLC. I don't know if I'm ready to grow up and be out of school yet. <laughs> University is so much fun, and I was thinking about all the things that I did and all the other things that I would like to do. Students on NC State's campus, there's so much to offer, and there's so much, so many opportunities that I don't want to graduate so I can take advantage of the extracurricular stuff. <laughs> That's Liz Walters, our Wolfpack of the Week, who came in to talk about alternative spring break trips and the Campus Arts Council, beaming with the enthusiasm shared by our Wolfpackers of the Week. If you're involved in opportunities here at NC State that you think people should hear about, send us an email, publicaffairs at wknc.org. To listen to the full versions of all of these profiles and all of the ones from the previous year, check out our website at wknc.org slash EOT. You just heard some of I on the Triangle correspondent Jacob Downey's favorite picks of Wolfpacker of the Week. To find out more about Wolfpacker of the Week or find out how you can nominate someone or yourself, go to wknc.org slash EOT. And that wraps up Eye on the Triangle's best of show on WKNC 88.1. I'm Seja Hindi. If you disagreed with some of our picks or thought we missed one, send us an email to publicaffairs at wknc.org or leave us a comment on the blog at wknc.org slash blog. We'll resume with our regular show format with our news and sport updates at the beginning and our new time next Wednesday night at 7 p.m. So make sure to tune in.